Hi y'all, Luke Thomas here. It is uh, Friday, November 1st, it's uh, sometime in the morning, and this is episode five of the Luke Thomas live chat. Now it's funny, because I've done more of these now that have not been live than have been live, but it is just a function of circumstance. I go on vacation, and that kind of jacked it up, and now here I am in New York City, and I could do this live, but I'd have to do it at the wrong time, and I'm not sure about the internet connection in this terrible, well, it's a fine hotel, but the internet here is not great. So I'm just gonna record this ahead of time, for as long as I can, and then I got to split because I also have to do a podcast with Showtime at noon. It's a thing, but I'm home next week, and uh, that should be fine. So I cannot wait to be home for many reasons, not least of which is to get back to the original setup that spawned the live chat, so we can do this in a normal and consistent way. So thanks for everyone who's been dealing with me on my various road trips. Uh, no longer on vacation, certainly still on the road, but happy to be doing this once again. Do you guys know the drill? I put up a thread. Uh, or a request for comments on a thread in my community tab here on this channel on Thursdays. You guys fill it up. You guys recommend which ones go to the top. I pick most, but not all of those, certainly, and then we get to them there. Um, today, I think the weigh-ins are happening right as I speak. I know that the main event is on, that those guys made weight. That was never really in question, but just, you know, they made weight. Um, I'm not sure about everybody else, so it's a bit of a real-time situation. We'll see how that goes. In the meantime, yes, I have a podcast uh, to do at noon. If you're watching this today uh, at 7 p.m. East Coast time, Dan Hardy and I are hosting a live radio show at Legends Bar in NYC, just a couple of blocks from Madison Square Garden. It'll take place after the UFC weigh-ins, so after the weigh-ins. If you want to come by and hang out with us, we're going to have a bunch of special guests. There's going to be some UFC champions there, so you're going to want to come by. And uh, some more than just that, though. And then, um, uh, but even if you don't want to go to the weigh-ins, you just want to come there, you can do that too. All right, all right, very good. Let's get to these questions with the time that we have. All right. Let's see. Huh. Yoel versus Izzy or Cannoneer versus Izzy. What should the UFC do? What will the UFC do? Well, there's no telling what the UFC will do. Um, your guess is as good as mine on that one. I have no clue. What should they do? This is a tough one. This is a tough one because um, Cannonier is certainly more deserving with the win streak that he's been on, that nice win he had over Jack Hermanson. And, you know, Uwell's already had a bunch of title shots, some of them which he, he botched by virtue of, you know, not making a weight cut. Um... And then he just lost to Paulo Costa. So, like, on a meritocratic standpoint, such as there is one, you know, Cannoneers, you're pretty easy call here, right? On the other hand, you just say to yourself, you know, which one do you, would you rather see? Which one is more interesting? And if you listen to Jorge Masvidal, he's saying that uh, Adesanya told him that the one that was more interesting was the one with Yoel. It was important for his legacy. It wouldn't be complete without it, as a matter of fact, I think, with the words that he used. And so you're like, well, geez, that's the one to go to. Like, dude, you know, which one do you naturally want to see more? It's not to say that the Cannoneer fight would suck or something like that, but whenever a fighter who's a champion has to fight someone, they're usually trying to solve for some kind of potential answer to their game. And Cannoneer, while well-rounded, you know, it's hard to look at what he does and say there's something that's like uniquely better than Adesanya. I could be wrong about that. Certainly, um, you know, MMA is hard to predict, but it doesn't stand out to you, whereas the wrestling kind of seems like something that, and just the brutality of his game in, in Yoel Romero, you know, where guys just aren't the same after they fight him, seemingly, 
that solves for something that 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 answers that central question so there's real tension there the best kind of fights are the ones where all those considerations all line up together and this one they're split they're bifurcated um and so now the question is what the ufc would rather do in that circumstance i don't know i really don't know like would i be mad if they made the romero fight i really wouldn't would you feel bad for Cannoneer? You really would. Um, what you would hate to see is if they made the Romero fight, and you know, I'm not suggesting that this would happen, but let's say that they did, and it ended up being like a real dud. That would suck, right? That would be that would be terrible. Uh, my hunch is that what they will do is that they won't give it to Romero. My hunch is that that would be so outside the boundaries of normalcy that they wouldn't allow for it. But if Costa can't fight till April, and we're just, today's the first day of November, so November, December, January, February, March, April, that's six months, Izzy could fight another time before then. It's possible. Before they even get to Costa. That seems to me maybe a path that they go, where they just give Romero a bit of a, you know, put him on standby for the Cannoneer fight, and then give him a kind of a, you know, semi-tune-up fight in the interim. And then see where they go from there. But... Certainly the more interesting fight, I think, by most people's accounts, is Romero versus Adesanya. Even Adesanya seems to think that. Hi, Luke. Tell us about the kind of work you do off-camera to prepare for your videos, radio, etc., and just your work schedule, work routines, workload. Um, well, I don't present to you that what I do is necessarily healthy or the best way. It's just the way that I do it. I don't really ever stop, to be, to be perfect, uh, perfectly honest with you. I don't really ever quit. Um... Now, for each show, what I'll do is they have to have four segments across three different hours. So you have one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And I begin to fill in those spaces in a way that makes sense according to what my boss's needs are, what the radio's uh, demands are, and what's out there, and, you know, what guests we have and things like that. But in terms of prep, you know, dude, you know, I don't present to you that doing nothing but reading books is the best way to go through life because it is certainly not, or papers or any other kind of reading but it is woefully uh, underdone, certainly in this sport. There's just People just are not well-read in this sport uh, at all. And certainly, I'm not suggesting that I am, but I am more so than a lot of people that I look around and look at. I'm like, you know, there's a strong degree of cultural illiteracy flowing through everything, which makes conversation and debate about a number of different topics difficult because people just are not engaged with the material. But... Uh, yeah, so what do I do? I wake up usually around 7, um, you know, and I'm on the computer basically right away, uh, more or less. Um, if I have baby duty, that goes to about 8.30. And then it's, you know, finding things, like answering questions in my mind, looking at data from Fight Metric, scanning the headlines, seeing what's out there, looking at Twitter, seeing what folks are saying, and then digging into, like, source material. Uh, occasionally making phone calls, occasionally... You know, checking in with folks. Sorry, I got something in my eye. But it's a lot of that. It's a lot of, uh, you know, curiosity about a certain question. Let's go dig it up. Uh, maybe there's something on YouTube I can find. Maybe there's something on one of my books I can find. Maybe there's whatever. And then there's just, you know, as the day winds on and those responsibilities go away, like the show's done, then I begin to get much more into my reading for pleasure's sake, which is not, you know, Stephen King. I mean, um, I'm reading a book right now on the history of Simone Bolivar which is, I would not recommend it, because it's just, unless you have a special curiosity about him, it's not all that great. Uh, I mean, it's a fine book, but it's just dense. It's like 700 pages, they're just, 
do you really care? I mean, I don't think like the UBI thing was generally interesting. The book on Uber was generally interesting. This one is just a biography about a dude who, if you don't care about, why would you care about? Um, and then it's just that, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then, you know, reading papers and uh, academic papers or the newspaper, and then that's it, constant. It just has to be your life to me, as far as I'm concerned. And that Again, that's not necessarily the best way to get information um, or the best way to go about understanding the world, but it's the way that I do it. So, uh, so yeah, it's about like that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm on some kind of electronic device right up until I go to the point at which I go to sleep. Might be my Kindle that I read at the very last part of my day, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just constant, con constantly, and you're not going to get everything that you read, which is why making a habit of just trying to constantly engage material eventually it just washes over you. Think of it this way: I had a buddy. I told him I um, I always give him a shout out because I think he's just so talented. And I wish he would have had a bit of a greater profile in the sport. Uh, Seth Smith out of Upstream BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. And I went to him, what seminar? I went to some seminar, I won't say who it was, but it was not very good. I was like, man, I didn't get much out of that. He's like, did you get anything out of that? And I was like, yeah, it was a grip here. I like the little sweep that they taught, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, well, here's the deal. It's like, the trick is to just make it a habit of going to these things to the extent that they are financially viable. And you're not gonna get, like not every seminar is gonna be good and you're gonna forget some stuff, but if you just make it a habit it just becomes a part of, yes, you lose some things, but you're in general going to gain much more. I, I look at reading much the same. You know, you know you're not going to retain everything you go through in a book, but if you can, over time, obtain this degree of cultural and subject matter literacy, you'll be in a much better spot. Certainly, and this is, you know, people always ask, oh, what's a great way to get ahead in MMA? Dude, there's a lot of people in the sport that just don't know anything. And, you know, and again, there's many topics of which I know absolutely nothing. Of course, we all have our own limits but I mean as a general like if you can come in here and you know a lot about statistics and you can make it work in MMA dude there's hardly anybody who knows anything about statistics uh, or physiology or history or anything any kind of real subject matter expertise and I don't, I don't just mean the humanities but um, it's, it's wide open for the taking it's wide open so take some kind of knowledge about the world some kind of specialized knowledge but a broad one at that and then bring it into MMA, and you will not have competition. <clears throat> Luke, uh, Nate keeps getting asked who the next BMF fight is after Jorge. Based on his responses, it seems like he has someone in mind. What's your best guess as to who he wants to challenge next if he wins on Saturday? Well, he says he doesn't want Habib because he already beat him. Connor, obviously, is a common response, you might think. I doubt it's Gaethje because that's just a... I think it's a bad matchup for him, but could be wrong. Um... Who would it be, else be at 170? It wouldn't be any of the wrestler types. The funny thing about BMF, that I, I've seen hardly any discussion about this, and it seems like so central to understanding this. The BMF title is not just about two dudes who have a cult of personality around them and who are, in the case of Diaz, a bit of an anti-hero, iconoclast thing. But it's also about not a rejection of wrestling. That's not what it is. Uh, because both guys wrestle. It is a rejection of everything the UFC 245 main event is about. It's not a contrast. It's a repudiation, which is to say winning through control positions. Now, that, that's not a fair assessment of either of those guys' games, right? A um, little bit more so Colby, but Colby does a lot in the stand-up work. That's where most of his volume and, and the striking attack comes from. Kamara does a lot of ground and pound. So I'm not suggesting it's an altogether fair assessment, but, you know, this kind of... Um, this kind of winning through control position, 
right? Wrestling and just holding a guy. It's a rejection of that. It's absolutely a clear rejection of that. It's about fighting in a little bit more of a mixed martial arts kind of way. And I think that's why it appeals to a lot of people. It's not, I mean, if these guys fought like Colby and Kumaru, it's not that people wouldn't want to watch. They're going to watch 245, right? It's going to be, it's going to be well attended and it's going to be well watched as much as this one. I don't know, but it's not going to be some kind of dud. Um, rather, it's that there is something attractive about this particular way in which they are engaging the fight world. And, I, and that seems to be lost on people to a degree. So it would, it would have to be somebody who follows in that mold. Couldn't tell you who that is. I don't know if he knows who that is. Um, and he says he wants to stay active to the extent that people come right with it. But it, I, 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 the, the Connor thing to me, it's like, I'm not saying he would say no to a Connor fight, dude. He might win if Nate wins and go out there and call out Connor, in which case, you know, all this is for naught. But part of me feels like he's just trying to distance himself from it. Like he wants it there in the case that, you know, in the case of emergency break glass. But if he doesn't have to break the glass, I think he's trying to forge his identity outside of it, which I think most of you would probably understand. And sympathize with if you could, right? Like, yeah, you want to get the big money, but do you just constantly want to be tied to this guy? You want to be able to say, I can float independently. And part of this fight is also, it's about not having to have Connor there to have a big fight. It would be bigger with Connor. I think we'd all agree. But just to have something outside of it. So who would it be? Your guess? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But somebody who can match those considerations is, is probably a likelier candidate. And you can see why, the, why both those boys are fatigued with the media, you know. Oh, well, you think they'll continue the BMF title? I don't know. Oh, um, you know, who, who, who would another BMF fight be? I don't know. And it just every day they have to answer that 10 or 12 times. It's wild. Uh, how do you think Tony Ferguson would do at 170 looking at the current top 10? I mean, if Pettis can go up there and win fights, why couldn't Tony Ferguson? But you just have to ask yourself, optimally, could he be controlled there? And could guys use their physical size, like a Kamar Usman, to hold on to him, to avoid submission defense, to you know, land harder shots in the stand-up? I mean, he fought at 170. <clears throat> you know, it's not like, and he's also known as, people forget this, Tony Ferguson has knockout power in both hands. Um, but it's just not optimal. So he could succeed... I don't think he'd succeed as much as he would at 155. Hi, Luke, how are you doing? Can you please break down the pros and cons of the karate stance, Machida McGregor, Wonderboy Nelson? Well, they're all a little bit different, but you're talking, um, that's better spent on somebody who can go into the details about karate, but what you would want to look up is bladed, like a little blade. Look up um, bladed stance, use, pros, cons, versus square or conventional stance. It's called a bladed stance. And the you know, basic idea, obviously, is that it creates a narrower profile. Um, you're hopping up and down, hopping up and down. So it creates you know, movement both as an evasive tactic and as well as a counter tactic or as a blitzing tactic. It has a lot of those um, benefits. Um, but, you know, it, so it's a little slow. It's a, it, you know, it creates a mobility. It creates a slender profile. Um, creates ability to, you know, change and in, in, initiate direction, initiate offense counter. It's got a lot of benefits in that regard. On the downside, it you know requires a lot of, um, uh, I think, or in an MMA fight, it certainly requires a lot of endurance because you're constantly, if, to, to be effective, you can't be flat-footed, right? Um, requires a mastery of range, requires a, I mean, these are, it, it, it just, it puts a certain series of demands on you that other stances wouldn't necessarily do, but it offers certain benefits. But look up benefits of a bladed stance is what really what you're looking at. Karate, a karate bladed stance. 
Considering the popularity of Nate Diaz skyrocketing lately, if his brother Nick were to come back for one fight, how popular do you think he would be? Extremely. There's demand for there's demand for Nick. There's de, there's demand for the Diaz brothers. There always has been, to various degrees, obviously, but there would be a lot. He was more of a household name in the early days. Do you think he could headline a pay-per-view just by his name? Oh yeah, do he? Yeah, yeah, easily, very. Very easily. If Nick wants to make big money in MMA, such as that there is big money in MMA, he could easily do it. I don't think it'd be much of a challenge for him, even a little bit. Mm -mm. Uh, okay. In a somewhat illuminating interview <laughs> with Brendan Shaw back in April, y'all are so mean. You mentioned you were reluctant to further penetrate circles of the MMA community and that you would pushed it as far as you want to go. That's about right. What are your main concerns with becoming increasingly embedded within MMA circles through your line of work? It is that you become, um, first of all, there's bad people in the sport. And if you really want, in my, in my view, if you really want, I could be wrong, but, um, and this is going to be different depending on what you do. It's not universally true. But um, you have to do business with either bad or ruthless or unethical people in some kind of a way. You have to rub shoulders with them. Um, and I just don't want to. I would much rather just have a lesser profile and not have to do those things, you know? Um, I get to choose who I want to interview. Um, I get to choose for the most, yeah, no, I get to choose, um, I get to choose so much of the events I want to go to. That's not quite true because part of that's a work demand, but, you know, like, I get to say what I want to say. Uh, you know, I got to be fair and reasonable, of course. So you got to be ethical, but I get to say what I want to say. And so, um, yeah, uh, it, isn't that much more important? I saw people, for example, like, uh, you know, you're going to have your own opinion about Deadspin, and I'm going to have mine. We probably won't agree about it. Or well, maybe we will. I don't know. But uh, I saw people being like, you know, if you have a real job, and you have real demands, you'd never just up and quit, you know. And it's like, yeah, that's true for a lot of people, but we live in a world where so few of us are, especially today, do we live in the age of grifters, of thieves, of vandals, of hucksters, frauds, you name it. We, we, we live in a real weird time in human history. And... Um, it's, it's unusual seeing people act on principle. Even if you disagree with the principle, it's just weird seeing people act on principle these days. Wow, that's real self-sacrifice. The people are just not accustomed to this right now. And so it looks so, the only way to process it would be to process it artificially. Yeah, dude, I've given up certain amounts of profile uh, in the sport. Although I don't think I'm you know, utterly invisible or anything like that. But, you know, there are, there are certainly heights beyond what I have reached. Um... But I don't want to have to do business up at that level in order to be up there. I would just rather make my own path and see how far I can take it. And then if it's less, it's less. But it's mine. And no one, no, no, like, what could UFC do to take this away from me? Nothing. I went to media day. I don't need to go to fight night. I don't need to go to fight night at all. In fact, fight night's a bit of an encumbrance because I got to figure out how to do I'm going to do my live show. Like, it doesn't do me any good. You know, I don't, they can't take it away from me. There's nothing they could do. Uh, yeah, going to fight, you going to media day is cool, hobnob with everybody, you get to go and see the managers and everybody's coaches and all the fighters are there, it's fun, it's cool, 
I like hanging out with some of the fellow media members, you know. But, uh, Aaron Bronsetter's great. The Submission Radio Boys are great. Mike Bond is great. I saw Mike Ramundi. He's great. Uh, who else did I see? I always see Chuck, but um, uh, I'm messing people up. Phoenix Carnavali was there. Danny Segura was there. Um, you know, uh, and I miss, I'm leaving out people, but there was a bunch of great people. Like, they're all cool, man. I like hanging out with them. But if they all took it away, how could you, what are you going to do? You're going to stop my radio show? You, could, you couldn't take it away. You're going to take away this? You can't take, you, you don't, I own it. It's mine. You can't take it away. Uh, so that keep that, that I, I said it from day one, like you, you know, everyone has to pick their own path in MMA, but in my world, I came up with the time when the UFC was just deciding and picking and choosing winners. And I just decided I'm going to go a path and it's going to be longer and slower and harder, but it's going to over time insulate me from any kind of promotional whims. And I've reached a point now where I feel like I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not suggesting that uh, black bowling would have zero consequences. It probably would have some, but in general, I think I'd be okay. Uh, if you were a farmer, which brand tractor would you buy? Very stupid question. Uh, should the BMF be continued? No, I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't have a dog in the fight, really. Um, I'll, I'll say this: someone's going to keep track of it, no matter what. Like if Jorge wins, and then he goes on, and th th someone's going to track in Wikipedia who the lineal BMF champ is. So in some ways, it's going to have a life of its own. I would say this. I would say I wouldn't want to keep it alive all the time, but I wouldn't mind like once every two years having like a BMF title revisited, you know, kind of a thing. Or once every four or however long it made sense. Like, you know, every once in a while pulling it out, but like continuously defending it, that seems stupid. With Paulo Costa out, would you like to see Adesanya take on the UEFA? We've already been over this. I heard someone say that when Dana White retires as the president of the UFC, the only logical success successor should be Chael Sonnen. Can you see Chael successfully filling that position? I've said this before. It depends what you want out of Chael. I'd rather him do what he's doing now than anything like that uh, because, it I mean, it requires you to be a promoter at boxing, MMA, whoever. It requires you to lie a lot and it requires you to work a lot against the fighter interests. It requires you to, yes, you know, part of it is public speaking and selling and narrative, and he could do that very well. He might be able to do all of it very well, but it would put certain demands on him that he doesn't have right now. So could he do the job and probably do it effectively? I suppose. Maybe even a hell yes. But would you want him to? I don't know. I feel like he's kind of killing it right now in the pundit space. I mean, it seems like that's a weird thing to abandon when it's going so well. I'd say just let him have it, you know, let him just keep doing what he's doing. It, it seems to be eminently successful for him. But this is why people are like, oh, Brian Stan would be a great replacement for, Brian, uh, for Dana White. Brian Stan would be the worst possible replacement for Dana White. You're talking about Captain America, Mr. Honorable. You'd want him to trade that in? Because that's what would be required of him. He had to trade all that in to do that job. You'd want him to do that? No. Keep that separate. How do you think losses affect coaches? For example, Duke Rufus with having Askren, Pettis, and Woodley losing major fights recently or long ago. Uh, they take it hard, man. They take it real hard. You know, I've said this before. I've talked to a couple coaches who thought they should have thrown in the towel, and they didn't. And their guys got messed up, and they, they wear it hard. Or, um, you know, they gave bad advice. Or even if they gave good advice, but they couldn't impart it on the fighter in real time, like the fighter wasn't listening, they take that to heart. Or, you know, if they do everything right and they, they, they game plan right and it was a close fight and they lose, 
you know, because the the coach is still, whenever that's over, he's not allowed to be sad. You know, he is sad, but he's not allowed to be sad. The only thing he's allowed to do is, um, you know, he has to be emotional support for the fighter. You know, so you have to be a guider, a leader, a teacher, a confidant. You got to be a, sh- a shoulder to cry on. And that's hard to do when you need a shoulder to cry on sometimes. So these guys wear it hard, man. They wear it hard. It affects them a lot, you know. And sometimes they get mad, even if they get mad at their own students for not listening to uh, them. Sometimes they're right and the students don't listen. They still wear it hard because it's like, well, why wasn't I able to get, get what I know is in there out of them in this case? And, you know, when someone gets cut from the UFC on a loss or um, there just can be all kinds of things. They, they, they wear it super hard for the most part. They don't talk about it because that's not their job often to not talk about it. But they feel it, man. They really feel it. Do Kevin Lee and Till suffer from that quote, just one good win and I will get back on the horse syndrome? What should be the role of the managers and trainers on stopping them from taking really hard matchups in situation they are both in? What will another loss do to them? But yeah, it's a, they're both coming off these back-to-back really bad losses. Uh, more so in the case of, well, they're both bad in their own way, you know, Till getting finished twice, but then Kevin having that long, brutal fight with Iaquinta, and then getting finished by RDA. It was submission, so I guess it's not physically as bad, but it wasn't great either. But then he had to change weight classes, then he had to come back. You know, I asked Kevin Lee about this yesterday. I was like, dude, you know, what's the problem with a tune-up? The best boxers in history all had tune-ups. The most legendary fighters had tune-ups. Why, why would, you know, what's wrong with the tune-up? And he's like, nothing. There's nothing wrong with the tune-up. He's like, just as a competitor, you know, he really wants this one for himself. Okay, fair enough, man. I get it, you know. You got to do what you feel like is best, but I don't know. I just don't, I don't, um, it just seems, uh, I'm not saying he won't win. He might, he might go out there and, you know, Gregor Gillespie is a very interesting prospect, but still somewhat un- uh, unknown in terms of his upside. Um, But it just seems so risky. It just seems so risky. Now let me check in on the Twitters. See about the old Darren Till. Let's see if he's made it. Let me check out. Uh, see if he's made weight. Blagoy Ivanov makes weight. That was not, I don't think much of a surprise. Jayazinho Rosenstruck. That's a hell of a name, isn't it? Oh, Darren Till puts any concerns of his weight cut to bed as he hits the scale 186. Good for him. Boy, that must have sucked for him, huh? But he found a way to do it. Let's see how he looks. Looks lean. Got abs. Smiling. Good for him. Good for Darren Till, man. Looks like he's in no discomfort whatsoever. I'm sure he's a little bit of discomfort, but he looks ready to rock. Good for him. Great. That's a great fight. I can't wait to see it. You know, he's got his work cut out for him against Kelvin Gastelum, but that's awesome. And he had to deal with a bunch of BS to get over here. So I'm happy for him. That's great. That's really great. Favorite Insane Clown Posse album? Another stupid question. Uh, are you going to see the new Terminator movie? Maybe when it comes out on streaming, but I'm not going to go to the movies for that. Like, to get me to go to the movies, there has to be an occasion. I've heard Terminator Dark Fate's pretty good, but I'll wait till it comes out on streaming. Do you prefer regular popcorn, kettle corn, caramel corn, or cheese popcorn? Cheese popcorn. That's my number one right there. 
Uh, okay, Luke, true, false. Connor fights for a title in 2020. False. Habib and Tony finally happens. True. UFC and USADA part ways. You mean like eventually? Sure. But it could be a long time. But I'll say true, but that not in any kind of imminent sense. Greg Hardy gets cut with a loss to Volkov. Boy, y'all got weird attitudes about Greg that are not in concordance with reality. False. John Jones fights Tyson Fury in 2021. False. Do you think it's possible that Yoel Romero gets a shot at Stylebender? We've been over this. Uh, are your jeans high and tight? Certainly hope not. Most underrated fight on 244, in your opinion? Underrated fight at 244. That's a good question. Um, let me pull up the card. That's a good question. Bump, bada, bump, 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 bump. Uh, underrated fight. Uh, maybe the Arlovsky Rosenstruck fight. I want to see what Rosenstruck's upside is. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you which one it is. Uh, Burgos Amir uh, Makwan Amerikani fight is good, but I'm going to go Shabazian versus Tavares. Edmund Shabazian looks like he is absolutely the real deal as a prospect. Is he ready for someone like Tavares, who is well-rounded and can do it all? I guess we'll see. I don't know. But that is a very, very intriguing fight to me. Super intriguing, because I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Shabazian, certainly he could win. I don't know if he will win. That's a big one. Love that. Give us one bet you would make on this card. Um... Man, Caitlin Chukagian will s scream every time she jabs. Um, let's see. Give me your thoughts on strategies for both guys in the Lee versus Gillespie fight. I mean, I talked to Faraz Zahabi yesterday. He was pretty clear about it. He was like, yeah, the plan is to make him stand. Like, they might wrestle him a little bit offensively, and they are expecting some defensive wrestling responsibility here. But in terms of a strategy... Yeah, dude, strategy straightforward. Like, they want to take him down. They want to box him up on the feet. They don't really want to play his game. Because once you start getting into a defensive wrestling mindset, that, that becomes your sole responsibility. And you begin to just survive. They want to attack him. And they want to keep him on the back foot. They want to make him get into that mindset. And then Gillespie, you know, I'm not saying he can't strike, but he appears to have the vast majority of his offense tied to his wrestling. So I'm expecting a little bit of that kind of tension involved. Is your old pal Ariel, what? Jorge is the first superstar from the ESPN era, sort of. Yes, baby. He was on ESPN Get Up. He's been on the Libertard show a bunch of times. Also, thoughts on the job ESPN has done on telling fighters stories. They're much better than Fox at that. Way better. So much better. In the pieces they put out for branded content on SportsCenter, they're better. Uh, um, production pieces they put out online, they're better. Um, pieces as in terms of like, like, like when to put out content to, to uh, around an event, like how to time it all. It's not really like how good is it, but how is it timed? Or what platforms is it released on? What audience is it tailored to? 
finding the nuance of a story, like a piece of information that's missing. You know what they're really good at? They're really good at finding a fighter and then their parents. They did it with Adesanya, and now they're doing it with Jorge Masvidal and his dad. Right? These familial connections, which really is what the fight game is about, is about community to a degree, um, and nationality and identity, which is tied to family. They're very, very good at that piece. I've got many criticisms of ESPN. Being bad storytellers is not one of them. They're great, great storytellers. They've done a, they did a great job without Asanya. They're doing a great job with Masvidal. Very, very impressive. Very impressive. Someone says, someone from a Dominican household, shouts to Juan Soto, the talk Brett had with Jorge and Jorge Sr. is probably what a lot of Spanish families go through. I've not seen that, but I'm sure it's good. Luke, do you know what happened to Zufa Boxing News? Uh, according to Mike Coppinger, it was supposed to be announced in October, but according to Mike Coppinger, uh, people have been hired. They just haven't made an announcement yet, but people have been hired. Um, would it be a possibility for the future that you would sit down with different MMA coaches and maybe they give you an insight into what they were looking at for a game plan for older fighters? Man, I would love to do that. I did it a little bit with Mike Brown over the phone after the Dustin Poirier fight. I was raising some concerns about things I had seen. And Brown, without giving away everything, was still pretty candid about giving away some things that he had seen that had troubled him a little bit. And um, uh, it, was, it was illuminating. It was highly, highly, highly illuminating. Uh, I really appreciated you know, his perspective. And I thought he just gave a lot of really great, um, smart, helpful information that... Um, not that you couldn't figure it out otherwise, but it just carries more gravity when they say it, you know? And sometimes, by the way, like, uh, for example, I was talking to Faraz yesterday, as I mentioned. This wasn't about one of his fights, but we were talking about the single leg X, and I was asking him, what did you make of Maya's introduction of it? And he thought Maya did a really great job going from using the single leg X in a full capacity, uh, let's say in the first round when Ben was peeling the ankle off the hip and then pounding on him, and then turning that into more of a transition a little bit later on. It's just little small details like that, you know, oh, what, is the single leg X a transition or a position? It's both, but in the way in which he was employing it and how that shifted and how that made a difference in the fight. You know, small details like that. I just, I always tell people, like, you should go and listen to other analysts because I'm not going to get everything for sure. And, uh, you know, getting a coach after a win, after a loss, they're going to have a great perspective, obviously, either way, but they have to be candid and someone has to fly me out to go do it. Because, dude, just doing it over the phone, it's like, I want to be able to have a screen up and I want to show them what I see and then ask them, why did this happen? How come this didn't happen? What does this mean? I don't want to do it like over Skype. I want to be there, you know? Uh, Luke, I know you're probably not going to answer this. Uh-oh. But no one else is on top of the MMA media game like you and Helwani. This is just a fact that I don't care what numbers you want to cite to dispute that. Anybody that wants to be educated to know the goings on at MMA, get it from you and him. Uh, me and everybody else would like to know what was the interaction like between you two at the UFC 244 media day yesterday. Yeah, we didn't talk. Just, there was no contact. Uh, Tyson Fury to MMA. If he could get his giant ass down to 205, there's no way, dude. He's an enormous man. He's an enormous man. He's not going to get down to 205. Uh, where can we get a morning combat mug? That's a good question. I'm going to go to Showtime after this. I'd have to cut this short. I can't go a full hour. Um, I'll find out today. I'll find out today. I don't know the answer to that right now, but I will find out today. Who wins the Rugby World Cup, England or the Springboks? So South Africa. Um, 
I never thought New Zealand was going to lose. I'm a big fan of the All Blacks. I love the Hakka. You know, I don't. I'm a, I, I am as casual as casual can be about rugby. You know, I had a friend who played semi-pro. Uh, I love watching it. I, I'm not. I don't. I, you know, no one needs to know my opinion about tactics because I don't really know a whole lot. Um, I'm just an American who likes and appreciates rugby and the level on which I can. It was England who beat New Zealand, right? So you beat the team that I like. I, I you know, it makes me sad, but I got to roll with England. And South Africa seems to be a great team, um, from what I can tell. But that England, if, if, if I'm right, I think it's the English English team that beat the All Blacks. Uh, you got to be something special to beat them. So I take my hat off to England. Hell of a hell of an op- hell of a job by them. Uh, let's do some true false here. Does two forty four more the two forty four does more buyers than two forty five? True. Conor McGregor retires if he loses his next fight. I'll say true. Gaethje fights the winner of Habib Ferguson. True. Colby Usman ends up with a finish. False. Mighty Mouse finishes his career in the UFC. False. Chris Weidman finishes his career outside of UFC. Definitely false. Um, do you foresee any visa issues with him having his outstanding legal issues in Ireland? No, because he's not been charged with anything. So what can they do? Oh, you're a person of interest? Okay. But... That would be a guilty till proven innocent kind of foundation, and that's not what we work on in criminal justice. So no. I, I mean, I, I mean, it's it's you know, I, immigration can be fickle and weird and 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 strange. So, okay, let's carve out a piece for us to say that maybe possibly, but probably not. Uh, does Darren Till's Muay Thai inside fighting skills have any chance of showing up in this fight? Yeah, sure. Especially because there's a height differential. Anytime there's a height differential. You can easily fire knees up the middle and have a strong effect. Plus, Kelvin Gastelum is going to be a bit of a handful on the outside. You know, there might be some case to do some inside fighting in this one for a lot of reasons to limit his ability to explode onto you. And then also, if you can control the inside space, you're the bigger, taller, ostensibly stronger man with a height differential. Yeah, that might be some real valuable space. But, you know, Kelvin Gastelum, this ain't, this ain't his first rodeo either. So, so, <coughs> so the answer is maybe, but... <coughs> No guarantees. Do you think any manager other than Ali could assault multiple people on camera without being punished or banned in some way by Dana or the UFC? What could be the main reason for this? I do not know. I mean, maybe they're waiting for the courts to play some kind of role here and let up and until the, the courts decide whether there's an innocence or guilt factor. They won't decide. I don't really know. I don't know what the issue is there. I mean, obviously, PFL made a call. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Mike Bisman called you an effing moron regarding your stance on USADA. You just praised him for his toughness. Do you think fighters take your words up wrong? I do think they take my fighters' words up wrong. Uh, fighters take words wrong all the time. Um, and he is entitled to his opinion, but I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely right about it. So you can like his opinion and agree with it and you can disagree with mine or the choice is yours. But, uh, the body of evidence for my position, I don't make positions by virtue of the, of, I mean, I'm not sitting on a throne. I'm in a hotel room. I'm not suggesting that he is either. Of course, he has earned his way in every way possible as well. I have nothing bad to say about Mike Bisping, but just in terms of the arguments that I make, you can like or dislike them for any number of reasons, but understand that I give to you a body of evidence. I have told you repeatedly about numerous 
scholarly works that have really investigated these issues. And my issue about USADA is it's not fighter friendly. If Mike Bisping would like to make the case that it is by virtue of overrunning their rights, by having no transparency, by not giving fighters a seat at the table, by ruining other fighters' careers, you know, by all means, that, that's a position that someone else wants to adopt. But it's not one that I can. But, uh, you know, I'll you have to remember this about fighters, whether it's this issue or any other issue. And particularly one for Mike Bisping where he's, you know, he's sacrificed a lot uh, dealing with, um, you know, the fight game. I think he just had a full knee replacement, right? I mean, it's a lot, right? It's intensely personal to them. And you can always, you have to always understand that uh, and appreciate that fact. And you have to take into consideration their views on just about anything, right? Because they have so much skin in the game. In fact, what I'm arguing is that USADA does not do enough of that. Uh, nevertheless, it doesn't make them uh, the final say, right? They have a say, but that doesn't make them the final say. And, um, you know, you have to just appreciate, while it could be intensely personal in certain capacities, this issue or any other issue, a, a bad judging call, a referee call, a, I don't know, you p pick your issue. Uh, it doesn't, that doesn't make the aggregate data about something challenged, right? An anecdote is not, it, it is evidence but it's not evidence of a larger trend, of a larger set of facts. And that's the, that's the space in which I want to work because I don't have that, that real personal connection to the game that he or anybody else has. What I do have is a broad set of facts, a broad set of data. If I'm wrong, you have to show me why. It's not why I'm wrong. You have to show me why the facts that I am presenting to you are wrong. You have to show me why scholars keep saying that global anti-doping is in crisis. You have to show me why... Um, Leading anti-doping scientists are consistently telling us they're underfunded. You have to show me why independent um, uh, assessments of the the use of drugs by athletes is in what widely in excess of 40%, and the adverse analytical findings consistently are 1% or less. You have to explain to me why T.J. Dillashaw in four years is the only person to get called for EPO. You think he's the only one using? You have to explain these facts. They're not my arguments. I'm merely repeating what is the reality of things. So people are allowed to call me whatever they want. They're allowed to say about me whatever I want, but I'm, I'm only working with the facts, the aggregate set of facts. So it's not about me. You have to show me why that is wrong. Why are we misinterpreting that? Show me the data that fighting is now safer, that USADA is here. Show me the data that uh, indicates that the fight game is Somehow, right, we have, we have preserved health by, by, um, by bringing them in. And to my knowledge, there is none. To my knowledge, n none of this information has been presented. No information has been presented related to why there are high rates of admitted use of drugs and they are catching uh, a, a small percentage. There has been no real explanation about why it's okay about what happens to Tom Law. There's been no explanation. You just had... You just had uh, Jeff Nowitzki say that the strict liability standard is not one that's even tenable for anti-doping, especially as it relates to these contamination cases. And that's, as I explained in a video before, that's the very bedrock of anti-doping, right? The, the, the science that is supposed to determine the, um, the science that is supposed to determine the, not really the, the kinds of punishments, but the severity of them, it clearly does not exist and it needs to be badly revised. And uh, if, if me looking out for the Tom Laws of the world makes me a moron, then I am happily so. All right, beard care routine. Well, I went in Colombia and I had some dude do it at this place called Machos. You know, uh, what's the, you know, women answer the door, 
You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's the, all these things are super sexist, but uh, in South America. But he kind of cut it like Billy Goat style, which I hate. So, excluding the current situation, I have, um, I get stuff in like the grooming lounge where I get like, you know, uh, you know, you wash it every day and then I don't put oil in it because that just is weird. I put like this thing called like, uh, it's like a certain kind of beard balm. Put it in there, I brush it out, and then, you know, I try to, I'm gonna let it grow out so I can reshape it because I hate the way it looks. But that's about what I normally do. Um, let's see. If Bellator, that's a good question. If Bellator put on a BMF title fight, who would you like to see compete for it? Um, who would like to see compete for it? Well, that's a good one. Honestly, their best fighter is Patricio Freire. He seems like a bad, bad MFer anyway. Uh, that's a tough one, man. I'd have to think about that. Wow. I would have said Chandler versus Patricio Freire, but we kind of saw that at least one time. I wouldn't mind seeing it again, I suppose. But that was a tough one. Um, Patricio versus somebody. Because he's not had easy fights. Have you heard anything about Rose Namajunas getting back into the cage? Other than that, I, that, that she wanted to, nothing. Been asking, what do you think you should do next? I've said this before. Uh, I, I covered this in my sit-down with Brendan Schaub. Um, um, it depends what he wants. If he wants to beat good guys and make money, I think he can. I think he absolutely can. If the goal is to still become uh, a champion, that's really what this is all about, I think that would probably take a little bit of reconsideration. Uh, I don't know how possible that is. So it really is entirely dependent upon his interest level. Yeah, some guys, all they care about is if I can't be champion, I don't want to compete. And some are like, well, I can't be champion, but I can still win. I can still make money. That's the thing I still want to do. If it's the latter, I think he, he absolutely could go forward and do great things. Remember, Justin Gaethje was one and two when he came to the UFC as well. He beat Michael Johnson, not controversially, but it was a wild affair. And then he lost the next two. The difference was he was in his athletic prime and he was able to change his style. Given that those are not necessarily things I think available to a 35-year-old <clears throat> previously retired wrestler turned fighter, as, as talented as he is, I think he can take what he has and beat good fighters and get good money and get in good fights, become a champion... Never say never, but it just seems a little bit unrealistic. All right, let's do like one or two more, and then I got to go. What do you think has been the biggest shit show, worst look of the situation for USADA UFC? Well, again, I only uh, I can only tell you what the facts of the case are, which is that uh, it, it, in the end, it, uh, coming up with a pulsing hypothesis related to John Jones. Uh, they're doing the best they have with the information that they have, but the reality is they have virtually no information to substantiate these claims. They have they have an educated guess, they have some very limited information, but they actually don't know a whole lot about this. So in the sense that they exonerated a guy, or at least didn't ever really, uh, punish him because they didn't have requisite science, I think is the right call. However, that they're willing to just be like, oh, this is what we think it is, so this is what we think it is, we're going to go out there and say that, yeah, it's probably this. It's like they don't, but they don't really know that. Um, but really, the biggest one is the one I always talk about. That was a bad one. But the one I really talk about is they didn't get fighter participation. It, it is amazing to me that fighters don't seem to make a bigger deal of this, which isn't... People conflate, oh, you want to be um, 
people think that if it's just more aggressive anti-doping, it's just better. And there's really not a, there's really not a lot of truth to that. They're catching mostly GNC users and then people who come off the regional scene. Like, TJ Dillashaw is the only guy who's used EPO in the last four years. That seems insane to me to think. Um, uh, and in the meantime, they have really badly damaged the careers of certain fighters, right? Uh, it's just, it, you have a system that doesn't catch the right ones and overly penalizes the wrong ones. That is hardly, to me, the optimal system. And the reason why that system looks the way that it does is because the interests of fighters were not represented when the policy was created, right? I don't know, understand why it's okay to bash Reebok for just taking UFC money and and then, you know, taking away all this other stuff that they had when USADA is doing the exact same thing. Doesn't mean you're against apparel clothing as much as you're against anti-doping. What you're against is the idea that the fighters don't get a seat at the table. And people have asked, what's the solution? The solution is have them take the Pepsi challenge. You really want anti-doping? Sign up for it. Sign up for it. The Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, which is cheaper than USADA, they uh, they exist on the premise that the fighter has a say. In what professional sport do we commonly watch and say the athletes don't get to have a say? In every other sport, bargaining on anti-doping rights is part and parcel of any kind of collective bargaining agreement. It is absolutely in every single one of those because they have a right to it. They have the most skin in the game. And if you want the most aggressive kind where you could get, eventually get hemmed up for something you didn't do, you are allowed to choose that, but you should still have the right to choose it. It, it, to me, it does not make a whole lot of sense to have a system of uh, anti-doping that to, it, it, questionable on who it's catching and who it's not, certainly, and at a bare minimum, damaging certain fighters' careers who are, it turns out, utterly innocent. Utterly innocent. How can you have a system of justice like that without self-reflection about whether or not that's the best way to do it? You cannot have the system where you know, innocents are being hurt and you just say, well, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That's unethical. That is unethical to do that. It is, it, is, it is my position, I have the most, this is the reality, I got the most pro-fighter position of anyone on this issue. Because we are systemically ignoring their right to have a say over their affairs as if that's okay because it's common. And it is not. It is not. And they should, USADA needs to explain why it's okay the fighters don't get to have a say over their policy. And I don't mean, hey, we called you up and how do you feel about this? No, no. Tell me why they don't get a seat at the table. Tell me why it's okay that they're missing in this regard. I want to have that explained to me. Why don't they have the right? Because they have the right in every other professional sport. Oh, they didn't, they didn't come to terms about it without a collect. They don't have a collective union. We have no one to negotiate with. Yes, you do. Each and every individual one. Have them sign up for the process. Have it make it voluntary, and let's see who takes the Pepsi challenge. And beyond that, I don't even want a system where it's either you buy into one system or you don't. What I want is a more comprehensive system that everyone buys into. That's better, but that is shaped along lines of fairness and justice and athlete input. But if we don't have that, they should have the right. And they don't. And they don't. Um, okay, I got to get out of here. I appreciate everybody watching. Like the video. Subscribe to the channel. 7 p.m. tonight if you're watching this. If you're watching it in a week from now, it makes no difference. But 7 p.m. tonight, uh, me, Dan Hardy, bunch of special guests. It'll be great. Come by, say hi. Legends Bar. And uh, yeah, all right. Until then, stay frosty.